This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Thank you. 
praise is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we seek his protection from harm and from causing harm from deception and from being deceived we ask his protection from the secret plots of the men and the jinn and we ask for his guidance and for the sincerity of our words and our intentions. We ask of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he allow our comments to be understood within the context of good advice to all human beings. And that he permit our words to enter the hearts of whom he wills as an arrow without being distorted and without being misconstrued. And finally, we pray that our assessment and conclusions will serve as a medicine and a diagnosis that will help us to adopt a treatment plan that will address and restore the dignity and the well-being of all the human beings. We ask him subhanahu wa ta'ala that our advice this evening be a contribution towards and a viable proposition and solution for world peace. All the praise is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is the originator of the heavens and the earth and have placed therein balanced environments. All the praise is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has revealed, sent down the book Al-Quran to his servant Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and did not allow in it any crookedness. All the praises are for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has given the human beings prophets alayhi salam and messengers alayhi salam to provide those human beings with illustrations for social conduct and morality. All the praises are for the Creator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who, who has granted the human beings intellect and superior faculties that enable them, the human beings, to govern other creatures. For without those faculties, the human beings would not have the way nor the means to govern the earth, its environment, or its creatures. It is this great responsibility, the intellect, that distinguishes the human beings from all other animals and makes them the crown of the creation as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَخَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي أَحْسَنِ تَكْوِيمٍ The human beings are the managers of the earth and as it were, they have been ordered to be the keepers of peace. 
With this great consideration do I present to you the proposition that the governments of the world, with their respective leadership, are obligated to search for a better and more comprehensive way for arriving and establishing peace. From the earliest recorded history, civilizations and individuals have put forward what they have considered to be a system, a philosophy, a culture that in their opinion would or should result in that noble objective establishing peace in the earth. The pursuit of happiness, harmony, prosperity and peace are not object pursuits. They require a very comprehensive plan. It is our responsibility this evening to objectively review and examine some of these systems, some of these theories, and determine just how they are suited and just how successful they have been in their claims towards providing peace in the earth. Of course, it is our conviction as Muslims, and rightly so, that Islam and only Islam has the system and the, and the comprehensive ability for obtaining this objective because number one Islam and only Islam has a divinely designated system which has all of the components that are suited for man's interaction with man man's interaction with his creator and man's interaction with the universal environment Number two, it is Islam and only Islam that provides a system that has a detailed map and manual for guidance and legislation that regulates man himself and modifies the nature of human beings which is inclined towards excess, greed, arrogance, and aggression. For if the plan towards peace does not provide a manual of guidance and a means by which to regulate the human beings, there will never be any peace. For there will always be some human beings who through their own excessive appetites, through their own arrogance, through their own desires, will want to impose themselves upon others and in that case, there can be no peace. We will attempt to illustrate just how and why the Islamic system is best able to achieve this. And we will provide, Allah willing, the evidence for those who are open-minded and objective to this issue or this discussion. I would like to remind the non-Muslims, whomsoever they are, wherever they are who may hear this lecture, who may be here with us, 
in principle or in person. That it calls for an open mind and an open heart to digest any proposition. And so if your heart is closed and your mind is closed and you have a preconditioned mentality like a glass which is upside down, you cannot receive anything. It would be proper for us to begin by defining peace from a linguistic and social point of view. Because as I mentioned, peace is not something which is abstract. And it is not something designed just by one group of people. But the author of peace ultimately is the designer of peace and the best one to define it. But from a linguistic point of view, since all human beings have a meeting point in language, we need to define what the Oxford Dictionary says. What is peace? That dictionary says that peace ultimately is the freedom from and the threat of war. And obviously because we are living on the precipice of war and the possibility of the annihilation of modern humanity. Those who have brought us on this precipice themselves obviously do not have the solution for peace. Peace is the freedom from civil disorder. And civil disorder means Rebellion against just, balanced, decent government. And peace, it means to have tranquility, to have mental calm, to have safety within the borders of one's country, one's home, and one's heart. In another dictionary of modern English, we find the meaning that peace is a state of harmony between people and groups. And that peace is law and order throughout a state and throughout the world. And peace is the absence of mental anxiety and psychological stress. It is clear that neither of these definitions within themselves provide a clear and comprehensive definition as it applies to the moral and spiritual aspects of human existence. Therefore, let us look at a wider definition which includes the above but goes further to address the very source of peace itself. In the Arabic language, which is very rich in its meanings. The definition of the word peace or Islam, it means submission and surrender. And it doesn't mean submission or surrender to any man-made legislation. It doesn't mean submission or surrender or conformance to any particular government. 
It means submission and surrender to the Creator, who is the source of existence, who is the owner of the human beings, who is the designer of the heavens and the earth, and whom without His ni'mah, without His benefit, without what He has sustained, without he has, what He has given, the human beings themselves would not exist, and their environment would not exist. Therefore, submission and surrender ultimately means submission and surrender to the Creator of existence. The Qur'an, which is the highest and purest source of Arabic in the world, has further qualified such submission and surrender that it should be directed exclusively to the Creator and the legislator, which, and the legislation which that Creator has provided for the human beings. The scholars of the Islamic creed has provided us with a very clear definition of peace in the following statement. In the Arabic language it says, Al-Islamu Istislamu lillahi bitawheed Wal-inqiyadu lahu bitawati That Islam, that is peace and submission to Allah, it means surrender, conformance, and submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Creator, according to the rules which He has ordered his prophets, alayhi salam, the rules of strict monotheism. And giving up and surrendering oneself, surrendering one's will, surrendering one's mentality, surrendering one's ideas and feelings, bitta'ati. Surrendering one ideas, feelings, or opinions to his obedience and rejecting all forms of rebellion and disbelief and polytheism and all the branches of these diseases wheresoever they are. This is the definition that the Islamic scholars have given to the meaning of peace. For our purposes this evening, we need to examine and compare some of the major systems in the world today to see whether they are or whether they have provided the solution for the social, economic, moral, and spiritual peace and harmony for the human beings. However, we should set some criteria for judging whether these systems, whatever they may be, are appropriate or are qualified to be considered as the very best system suited to lead the entire humanity towards a comprehensive peace. Such a system
according to the social scientists, the political and historical mentors, the major teachers of ethics and philosophy, such a system should have the following characteristics. One, it should protect and nurture the rights and the responsibilities of the human beings in their individual capacities. Number two, it should preserve the sanctity and the importance of the family unit because ultimately the family unit is the basis for society. And without the family unit and its protection and preservation, there can be no salvation, there can be no sanctity for humanity itself. Number three, it should cultivate the idea of cooperation, morality, and mutual respect within the members of the community. Number four, it should have institutions and legislation that promote and regulate the society towards ethical values, respect for law, concern for the young and the elderly, and a commitment for charity and morality. And number five, it has to be a system that is all-inclusive in its interaction and concern for all the peoples of the earth and not infatuated with its own form of nationalism. It must have the ideals and principles that can attract and lead the world into one cohesive universal order. Having set this criteria, we can immediately see that almost every social system that exists in the world today has been eliminated. We cannot consider communism or socialism because we can see now the results of that tragic social experiment which has failed. Five years ago, no one predicted that the experiment called socialism and communism would be a failed experiment. Because at that time, it was commanding one-third of the whole of humanity under its influence. One-third of the entire world found itself under the influence of the communist and socialist experiment. And no one predicted at that time that this experiment would be dismantled and that it would become history. It has been dismantled and today it is history. The fathers and proponents of that theory have abandoned it for an empty atheism and they find themselves now in bed 
with those whom they considered to be their enemies, the capitalists. And so today, the social tragedy called communism has turned into a nightmare and they are now bed partners with the capitalists. And the principles of socialism and communism now lie in the ashes of a demoralized and dichotomized society. And what has happened to the one-third of humanity who were subjects of that experiment? We cannot consider the intellectual atheist model which has fanned its umbrella all over the world because we can see the gross confusion and paralysis within the Western atheist societies where racism, nationalism, individualism, and dialectical materialism have ruptured the idea of morality, brotherhood, godliness, and the sanctity of the family. These characteristics, morality, brotherhood, godliness, and the sanctity of the family have become abstract. If you ask the average individual in the Western societies, the so-called most developed societies, what is meant by godliness, they will say they don't know. What is meant by the sanctity of the family, they will say they don't know. What is meant by brotherhood and fraternity, they don't know. And what is meant by morality, it no longer has any definition. When we examine capitalism, which is the major system, the major religion, the major set of ideals and philosophy and social system in the modern world, we only have to view some of the glaring statistics to see whether it is worthy of our consideration. Capitalism, which is built upon the interests of corporate business and the flow of currency, has engulfed the modern world in gross materialism and decadent immorality. A decadent immorality which is unmatched in the history of humanity. Let us review some of those statistics. Capitalism first made its impression upon the world through the inhumane institution of slavery, where for nearly 400 years, more than 80 million Africans were brutally kidnapped and forced into a system where they were sold as a commodity and used in the industrial agricultural complexes of America and Great Britain and treated with less dignity than dogs and mules. Capitalism made its way to South America where the conquistadors invaded, enslaved, terrorized, and thoroughly exploited the natural resources in the name of the King of Spain and the King of Portugal. Companies today like Del Monte and Goodyear Rubber still operate industrial slave complexes in South America today. Capitalism 
has manifested itself in the diamond mines of South Africa, in the colonialism and exploitation of India, Africa, Southeast Asia, and also in the tragic exploitation of the Australian Aborigines. A story that perhaps you know better than I. In the modern world, which the people like to call the most sophisticated advanced civilization, in the USA and the UK in particular, we have only to review the statistics to determine how close these societies have come to fulfilling the criteria and models for peace. Let me share with you some of these statistics. Between the USA and the UK, the two most sophisticated advanced civilizations, there are 27 million persons addicted to drugs. There are 89 million people addicted to alcohol. There are 106 million persons addicted to cigarette smoking. 21 million of those die every year from diseases related to their addiction to cigarette smoking. 24 million women prostitute themselves legally with licenses. Eight murders or homicides are committed every 19 minutes. And two rapes are committed every seven minutes. And there are three robberies every 59 seconds. There are 257,000 children that are legally or illegally aborted. That is, 257,000 children are killed in the womb by license. 21 million children are born every year out of wedlock who do not know their mothers and fathers or who do not know whom they are fathered by. 2.8 million suicides every year of human beings who find no reason to live. 275,000 persons are locked up in their prison industrial complexes. And today, the prisons are built as industries. They are no longer built simply to house and to reform criminals. They are built as industries and major conglomerates compete with one another for the contracts to build and to administrate these prison complexes because they have found that the labor from prisoners are just like the labor in South America or India in other places. They can have people locked up for 20 years, 30 years, or for life, 
and have them to work for 53 cents an hour. So it makes sense to build prisons and it makes sense to give people life in prison. These statistics I share with you. These statistics I share with you, of course they are subjective statistics. And of course, there would be some social analyst who would disagree and who may want to modify these statistics. And I say, even if we were to modify these statistics, 30%, and say that, and leave a room of 30% of error. Still, these statistics are shocking. They are depressing. And they are evident themselves that such societies do not qualify to be the models or the champions for the source of bringing peace to the world. With these kinds of social problems inside of their own boundaries, inside of their own governments, in their own institutions, how can they bring peace to the world? It doesn't make sense. How can such societies promote peace, human rights, and morality for the world while it's quite evident that they are not able to bring such peace and morality inside of their own societies. It is crystal clear that the capitalist social model which dominates the world today is not suited for providing humanity with the paradigm for peace. We should now consider whether the major religions of the world offer a solution to this challenge. Let us first examine the historical profile and ideological premise of Christianity. And to be very fair and objective to Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, alayhi salam, we should not link the history of Christianity to the life or the message or the person of Jesus Christ, alayhi salam. Rather, we should say that those who claim to be connected to Jesus Christ and have created their own system, we should refer to them as the Christologist. Although we Muslims believe that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him and his blessed mother, was a great prophet and messenger of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, according to The scriptures that prophesied his coming according to his own words and according to the Quran. Jesus Christ, he said in his own words, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he said he was not sent to the world. 
He also told his followers, the Nazarenes, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, nor into any town of the Samaritans, but go rather into the house of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus Christ himself never said that he came to bring the whole world peace. He came to bring a message. He came to bring a gospel. He came to prophesy that someone would come after him who would bring that peace. And although the actual life of Jesus Christ is a model of high morals, religious devotion and insistence upon sacrifice and obedience for Almighty God, we find that the history of the Christian church to be diametrically opposed to the life and the message of Jesus Christ. And we find it to be associated with slavery, colonialism, segregation, homosexuality, and child molestation by priests who are responsible for administering the religious sacraments. We should point out that the participation of the church itself in the African slave trade and the post-colonialist apartheid of South Africa, the genocide conquest of Spain and Portugal in South America, the subjugation of the people of Southeast Asia and their central role in the shame of the Crusades itself disqualifies the modern church from such a role. Christianity, or more accurately, the Christologists, as a world system, does not deserve to be associated with the great and sacred person of Jesus Christ, alayhi salam, and his blessed mother. Nor does it qualify to lead the world towards the proposition of peace. And more than anything, peace requires a regulation, a manual. A manual that can regulate and be represented by government. The Christian church has never been able to develop a government. And that is why today it finds itself on the lower scale of the dichotomy between church and state. That is, throughout the world, the state of human beings and the government of human beings have subjected the church to a role of only rituals. Hinduism and Buddhism are clearly based upon caste systems where they consider, in particular the Hindus consider all sudras. And that word sudra is anyone who is not of the Brahmin class, the godly class they call it. All sudras, that means the untouchables, in their own words are on a level the same as the species of animals. And according to the Hindu belief, 
any Brahmin, the godly class that kills a sudra. The atonement for killing a sudra is like the killing of a dog, a frog, a lizard, a crow, an owl, or an ant. Obviously, a belief that characterizes human beings like that cannot offer peace to the world. The Hindus also state in their own book that whatever is on earth belongs to the Brahmin. For the Brahmin, that is the godly class of human beings, is the highest among all human beings and all things are for him and all other things belong to him. As for the religion of Judaism, neither do they invite anyone to their religion, neither do they join anyone. They are an exclusive people and we don't associate them with Abraham salam, and we don't associate them with Musa salam, because they have long ago under the guise of Zionism and under the tenets of their modern day scripture, the Talmud, they have long ago abandoned the tradition of Musa salam, and Ibrahim salam. And under the principle of Zionism, according to the Talmud, the Jews have a semi-divine status. And all non-Jews and Gentiles are called goyim. Filthy, unclean, subhumans. The Talmud itself is the preeminent legal authority for all Jews today. This clearly disqualifies them for providing the world with universal system of peace. We would like to now examine the premise of Islam for consideration as a system which can offer to the world a constitution and a culture that can reform the world and lead it down a path towards peace. Let us rely upon the Quran itself to provide the mission statement for what we have to say. First, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Verily, the system before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for all the human beings is nothing other than surrender and submission to Him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions to us, do you not reflect upon the Qur'an, O human beings? Do you not study it with care? Had it been from anyone other than Allah, Almighty God, certainly you would have found in it many inconsistencies and conflicting evidence. Therefore, we will never find any statements in the Qur'an that conflict with any facts established by modern science, whether medicine, astronomy, botany, chemistry, geology, obstetrics, oceanography, 
you will never find in the Quran any statements that conflict factors that have been established by modern science. Secondly, the Quran and only the Quran has provided the world with the most powerful economic system and a very clear insistence, insistence upon intellectual brotherhood, a guide to social ethics, regulations to preserve the morality of the society, a prohibition against alcohol, drugs, fornication, adultery, and a very strict and harsh punishment for robbery, drug trafficking, rape, murder, indecency, sodomy, and every kind of public and sexual immorality. And this is why, regardless of the lack of sophistication you may find among Muslims, the immoralities that are common among the sophisticated civilizations, it's very rare among Muslims. Of course, alcohol and drugs have found their way into the Muslim societies, but they still remain a subculture, a rarity, something extraordinary, something out of the ordinary. You will find that 95% of the Muslims do not drink alcohol, do not take drugs. 95% of the Muslims do not commit fornication and adultery. And it is very rare to find a Muslim woman committing herself to prostitution. And the number of illegitimate children in the Muslim world is negligible. Why? Because the family is still sacred. This itself is evidence that the 1.4 billion Muslims throughout the world, we don't mean Arabs here, we don't mean Africans here, no, we mean the Muslims wherever they are. Because we can gauge the difference between Muslims in every country. For instance, we can apply the statistics I gave you about the non-Muslim world in China. In China, there are more than 180 million Muslims. And among those 180 million Muslims, drugs, alcohol, fornication, adultery, immorality, sodomy, homosexuality is negligible. It hardly doesn't exist. And when it does exist, it's an abnormality. And it doesn't exist in the open. These are the Muslim Chinese. But when you visit the other part of China, which are more than 850 million people, you find that alcoholism, drug addiction, immorality, cannibalism, homosexuality, prostitution, immorality, bastard children, is the norm among the Chinese. 
What is the difference between the Muslim Chinese and the non-Muslim Chinese? The difference is the Quran. The difference is the behavior that they have adopted from Muhammad And you can take this same barometer and take it to Russia. And in Russia, there are 90 million Muslims. And among the Muslims of Russia, you find the same characteristics. And then you can move on to every different civilization, every different society, and just extract from that society the Muslims and apply the ruler to the Muslims. And you'll find here in Australia, I understand in the city of Sydney, there are more than 400,000 Muslims. I don't know how many Muslims there are in Australia. But I will guarantee you that if you examine the social statistics of the Muslims in Sydney itself, you find it very rare and abnormality for a Muslim child to be born not knowing his father. But you find it a normality among the non-Muslims for a child to be born not knowing its father. You find it rare among the Muslims that a Muslim woman becomes pregnant and she will abort her child. It hardly never happens. But here in Australia itself, I looked up a statistic. There are more than 56,000 children aborted every year. Why among the Muslims it doesn't happen? And why among the non-Muslims it is happening? Why? Because the Muslims of Australia, they are affected and regulated by the Quran and by the behavior of Muhammad And why is it among the Muslims in Australia or America? In America there are 8 million Muslims. 286 million people and 8 million Muslims. It is very rare in America to find a Muslim addicted to drugs. And when they are, they are just subject to the society. They are criminals. But it is rare, not a normality. And hardly ever do you find a Muslim addicted to alcohol. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, some of the Muslims are engaged in criminal trafficking of alcohol and drugs, but they don't use it. It's a crime for them to sell it. It's a crime for them to traffic it. And in the Muslim country, they will be killed for that. So we don't justify it, but they don't use it. So why is it the statistic that among the 8 million Muslims in America, it's very rare that a Muslim woman in America will abort her child. It's very rare in America that a Muslim child is born and doesn't know its parent, its father. It's very rare in America that fornication and adultery among the, the families, it's very rare. And sodomy and homosexuality, there's not even 1% among the Muslims. Because in Islam, we don't say that people are born with this characteristic. We say that it is a learned 
chosen characteristic. And the Quran tells us clearly that the punishment for that through the Prophet Sallallahu example and through the Khulafa al-Rashidin's example that the people who do those actions, they should be killed. That's it. So because of that, historically among the Muslims, this crime has not taken root. Why is it among every society in the modern world today, where Muslims live, we find a different set of statistics? It is because of the effect of the Quran and the behavior of Muhammad And I say that the modern world today would complement itself, would do itself a favor, would be wise, would be prudent if they were to consider the Qur'an, if they were to consider the behavior, if they were to consider the morals and the values of Islam. Because if they did, they would find, they would be able to resolve some of their major diseases. Let me give you an example. Our brothers, the Taliban, we won't comment on them from a political point of view, because that's not the nature of our talk today. But let us comment on them for an accomplishment that they and only they were able to do in the modern world. In the modern world between America, Great Britain, China, Russia, Germany, France, Japan, Italy, between the major countries in the world, the drug trafficking is a business and an industry of over $78 billion a year. $78 billion a year. Can you imagine what kind of industry it is? And can you imagine the tragedy, the disparagement, the disease, that drugs have brought in the modern world as a result of this industry. Yet, all of these sophisticated countries have found no solution for the drug problem. In fact, they have chosen to benefit, profit, and regulate the drug traffic because they are unable to stop it. Yet, consider this. The Taliban in Afghanistan became an official government after the defeat of the Russians. And at that time, Afghanistan was the major theater, corridor in the world for drugs. 61% of all of the heroin of the world was produced between Afghanistan and China. And the Russian gangsters, criminals, were the ones that controlled this industry. Part of the war of Afghanistan had to do with drugs. Not oil, not gas, but drugs. When the government of Russia was defeated and pushed out of Afghanistan, 
Afghanistan become immersed in civil war. We know that, isn't it? Civil war. That civil war had two sides. The atheists, the socialists, the communists, among the Afghanis, and the Muslims who wanted to follow the Quran and the Sunnah. The North, the Northern Alliance, who themselves were related to the Russian gangsters, who were mostly Muslims who had adopted socialism, atheism, who themselves were criminals. They wanted to continue the enterprise of drugs after the Russians moved out. They wanted to continue the, the, the industry of prostitution, gambling, all of this here. And the Muslims said, no, we won't continue that. We want to establish Islam. And they began to have wars between them. One of the groups that were insisting upon the Quran and the Sunnah were called the students. In the Arabic language, the students is Talib or Taliban. And on one occasion, those atheists, socialists, communists, Afghanis, those criminal Afghanis, they entered some villages and they raped the women. And some of those women escaped. And they ran to seek protection with those students. And those students, they sought to get a fatwa from their shuyukh. What should we do about these Muslims who did this act? Those scholars said they should be punished. They are criminals and the hukum is to find them and kill them as criminals. Those students then took their weapons and gathered themselves together as a group and called themselves the Taliban. And they began to seek the honor of those women who were raped. And they went from village to village, town to town, until in a two-year period of time, they conquered all of Afghanistan. Two years. They conquered all of Afghanistan, except only 19%. 80% of Afghanistan they conquered in two years. Who were they? They did not have sophistication. They were walking, riding donkeys and horses, fighting on foot, fighting for the honor of their women, for the honor of their country, for the honor of Islam. And in two years' time, they subdued the entire country. Of course, they were not sophisticated in their knowledge. They did not have universities. They did not have institutions. Even in most of Afghanistan, there was not a standing hospital. But they established what they called the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. The only standing Islamic Emirate in the world at that time. Yes, they were ragtag. They were not sophisticated. But they had honor and love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inside their hearts. And we don't know, as Muslims, we don't know any connection with the Taliban to September the 11th. Let's be clear about that. We don't know, we don't have any evidence or any proof that they had any connection to that.
except that they would not give up their brother, Osama bin Laden. We don't make any comments about what happened because we don't know. But we don't indict people without evidence. And we certainly don't indict a country because someone is living there whom someone else feels is indicted. But let me get back to the issue. Afghanistan came under the rule of the Taliban and they were faced with a, a challenge. How, what are they going to do with the drug industry which they found in Afghanistan? The Taliban made a decision. From a point of honor, from a point of morality, a point of dignity and decency, from a point of Sharia, they could not support and allow drug trafficking to exist in Afghanistan. So what did they do? They began to punish those who held drugs, those who sold drugs, and they began to imprison those that used drugs. Then they gave an option to the farmers who were the growers of poppies in Afghanistan, the major crops for drugs, isn't it? They told them, we will give you the land where you are growing the poppies. You, it's, you take the land, but you must grow another crop. You must grow a different crop. But if you don't grow another crop, then we will bury you on that land. That's the only option they gave them. In a year and a half after the fatwa came about this issue, a year and a half, the drug trafficking and the growing of drugs and the manufacturing of drugs in Afghanistan was 3%. How? How did an unsophisticated group of students without government, without sophisticated institutions, how did they do this? How did they eliminate an industry which represented 61% of the, of the source of drugs in the entire world? How did they do that? They did it from their iman. They did it because they were affected by the Qur'an. They did it because they were affected by the behavior of Muhammad And this is why I say as an example that Islam and only Islam has the properties by which to affect the human being's consciousness, to design and regulate his morals, and even to regulate governments so that even governments themselves are forced to adhere to rules of decency and dignity. The Quran has provided the world with the most powerful source of regulation. And Islam places the status of women and the family at the most precious and central unit of the society and has laid down laws to preserve its sanctity. Let us take another example. You can travel throughout the Muslim world as I have done. And of course, you see tragedy. You see deviation. We see Muslims being away from Islam, being negligent in their conduct. But 
the family, the Muslim family, is still intact. In the Western world, when a person becomes 60 years old or 70 years old and they can no longer function, let me tell you what happens to them in China. In China, they're put to sleep. Because they have something in China called zero population. So there's no toleration for old people. When they get to a point where they have no function any longer, they put them to sleep like dogs. In China, the rule is one child for every family. And if you have two children, you are put in prison and you are, you and your wife are both anesthetized and remove and your ability to have children is taken out what do they call that vasectomy sterilized this is china so what has the family become in the modern world and what is the family in islam the family in islam is the most sacred unit without the family there's no society Without the family, there's no sanctity. The Messenger of Allah has placed respect for the mother and father as the highest respect next to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A man asked the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, a'mal afdal? He said, the Prophet said, As-salatu al-waqtiha, prayer in its proper time. The man then said, Thumma ayyu. He said, Birru walidain. And the man then asked, And what next? He said, Al jihad fi sabilillah. So the Messenger of Allah, وسلم, when he was asked, What action is the best and what is the most excellent in the sight of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said, Prayer in its proper time. And after that, respect for your two parents. And after that, struggling in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And because the family has this value in Islam, still you find in the Muslim countries, the children respectful of their parents. The Prophet said, He is not of us who has no softness, gentleness towards the youth, and has no respect for our elders. This is the family of Islam. Islam calls for social justice, distribution of wealth, preservation and honor for the family, a social morality, and an unequaled social justice, which is found in no other government in the world. Islam has laid down very clear and open traditions through the illustration of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. For marriage, divorce, raising children, social interaction, business transactions, international relations, and personal ethics and hygiene. There is no human being in the entire world whose life can be looked at categorically and followed by individuals and governments in detail except the life of Muhammad And we Muslims can proudly say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to the world of humanity 
the best example of behavior in the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He said to us, "Laqad kana lakum fi Rasulillah uswatun hasana." There is for you, human beings and Muslims and believers. There is for you in the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the most profound pattern of human behavior for those who believe in Allah and fear the meeting with Him on Yom Al Qiyamah. This is a challenge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I always ask the enemies of Islam, the opponents of Islam, I always ask them if you have some opposition to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, if you're not inclined to his example, I ask you, produce for me right now, tonight, give me a name, give me a personality, Tell me in history any individual whose life can match categorically with that of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. They cannot produce anyone, and the closest they can come is Jesus Christ alayhi salam. And I say to him, that's close. But Jesus Christ was not a father, and Jesus Christ was not a husband, and Jesus Christ was not a statesman, and Jesus Christ was not a ruler. So in those four capacities alone, we can say that Jesus Christ did not compare with Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, although they were both prophets and brothers. So if the best they can do is come up with Jesus Christ, we say yes, Jesus Christ is very close. And in all respects, we say we make no difference between the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa taala. But as a complete example for the whole of humanity, we only find one. And even. The modern historians and biographers today, in their examination of this issue, they have put together a list of 100 most influential human beings in the world, and five different biographers themselves putting together this, they came up with the name Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Although they themselves, they were not Muslims. Islam. Has insisted upon every Muslim to pursue higher education and the application of every kind of science. In the very first revelation to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Allah Tabarak wa Taala said, "Ikra bismi Rabbika ladi khalaq khalaq al insana min alaq ikra wa Rabbuka al akram al ladi alama bil qalam alama al insana maalam yaalam." Read in the name of your Lord and Cherisher who created you. Read, who created you, a man out of a leech-like clot? Proclaim and read, and your Lord is most bountiful. Who taught by the use of the pen? The Quran said, "Who taught by the use of the pen and taught man that which he knew not?" So it was the Quran that ordered the Muslims to read, to study, to reflect, to pursue higher education and science. Islam has mandated the social equality of all human beings, the equality of women with men, the eradication of classes, and ordered the unprejudiced cooperation between all groups, communities, and nations. You find nowhere else except in Islam that all kinds of human beings—the black, the white, the red, the yellow, the male, the female, the tall, the short, the male, the, the tall, the short, the rich, or the poor. All of them are together, and even when the prayer is called, no one of any class has the right to stand in a rank before another. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna akramakum indallah atqaakum. Verily, the most noble of you in the sight of Allah is those who are the possessors of taqwa, fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Islam invites the entire mankind to believe in Almighty Allah, the prophets, and to submit themselves entirely. Allah tabarakwa ta'ala says, and do they seek for other religion other than that of the religion of Allah, while all the creatures in the heavens and the earth have willingly or unwillingly bowed to his will, and to him they shall all be brought back. We should say, we believe in Allah and what has been revealed to us and what was revealed to Abraham, Ismail, Isaac, Jacob and the tribes alayhi muslam and in the books given to Musa, Isa and the prophets alayhi muslam from their Lord. We make no distinction between one and another among them and to Allah do we bow our will in Islam. Allah ta'ala says, if anyone desires a religion, a system of life other than submission to Allah, Islam, never will it be accepted of them. And in the hereafter, they will be among the ranks of those who have lost everything. Allah Taala says, O you who believe, fear Allah as he should be feared and die not except in a state of Islam. Allah Taala has mentioned to us these verses that we might reflect upon him as human beings. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, La ikaraha fiddeen, qad tabayyana rushtu min al-ghay, faman yakfur bittaagood, wa yu'min billah, faqad istamsaka bil-urwati al-wuthqa, lam fisama laha, wallahu sami'un alim. Allahu waliyu al-lazina amanu, yukhrijuhum min al-dhulumati ila al-nur, wal-lazina kafaru, أولياؤهم الطاغوت يخرجونهم من النور إلى الظلمات أولئك أصحاب النار هم فيها خالدون Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned let there be no compulsion in religion truth stands out clear from error whoever rejects taagut that is the false idols and objects of worship and believes in Allah has grabbed hold of the most trustworthy Handhold that will never break and Allah hears and knows all things. It is the position of Islam that all authority and rule belong to Almighty God, Allah. And any government among the human beings have only the responsibility of implementing and executing those commands. It is not governments who themselves are the rulers. It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has the right to rule and has the right to legislate. And the governments of men, they are only entrusted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the privilege and responsibility of regulating the human beings. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O you who believe, stand out firmly for justice as witnesses to Allah, even as against yourselves or your parents or your kin. And whether it be against the rich or the poor, for Allah can best protect both. Follow not the lusts of your hearts and your desires, lest you swerve from justice. And if you distort justice or decline to do justice, verily Allah is well acquainted with all that you do. O oh, you who believe, stand out firmly for Allah as witnesses to fair dealing, and let not the hatred of others make you swerve towards wrong and depart from justice. Be just, implement justice, because that is next to piety. 
And fear Allah, for Allah is well acquainted with all that you do. Thus, we have proven through this proposition that Islam and only Islam has the capacity to lead humanity down the road towards world peace. Islam and only Islam can guarantee the present world a solution to their social problems and their erosion. Islam and only Islam can provide a moral reform and an equation of social justice for the world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to us in the Quran, الْيَوْمَ أَكْمَلْتُ لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ وَأَتْمَمْتُ عَلَيْكُمْ نِعْمَتِي وَرَضِيتُ لَكُمْ إِسْلَامُ دِينًا Today, I have perfected for you your religion, your system of life, and completed my favor upon you and chosen for you Islam as your system of life. My dear brothers and sisters in Islam, in my proposition this evening, I have attempted to put forward an equation towards world peace and to direct our attention towards the historical example of Islam. I didn't say the Muslims, I said Islam. Because Islam is the rule, Islam is the principle, Islam is the deen. So we don't call the people to the Muslims, we call them towards Islam, towards the principle, towards the deen. In tomorrow's lecture, we will continue this proposition and we will discuss more why, why Islam and only Islam can be considered to be the solution for world peace. وَأَقُولِ قَوْلِ هَذَا وَأَسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهَ لِي وَلَكُمْ يَا اللَّهُ غَفُرُ الرَّحِيمِ بِرَحْمَتِكِ يَا أَرْحَمَ الرَّحِمِينَ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ I'm responsible for what I said, and I'll do my best to answer questions relative to what I said. This was not a, uh, uh, a lecture aimed at social political issues. Peace is a moral issue, and that's what I'm talking about. If I touched upon some other things, it was to bring it to the issue of peace. So the questions that come for that, I'm going to answer that. But if it doesn't, you please pardon me, but that's for another person uh, to answer, or that's for another uh, uh, lecture. Um, sisters who ask questions about marriage and divorce, that wasn't the, the subject, unfortunately. <laughs> the brothers who asked the questions about Khilafah, that wasn't the nature of the, question, the, the, the topic here. I didn't discuss Islamic State, and I didn't discuss the issue of Khilafah. And of course, the whole body is related, everything in the body is related to the body, so you can say, well, it was related some kind of way. But we were speaking about the issue of the solution towards world peace. And uh, if there's a way I can connect the issue of world peace to the need for Islamic State, of course, I'll say to everybody, of course we should have it. And if there's an Islamic state, of course there will be Khilafah. But if there is no Islamic state, and if there is no Khilafah, still we Muslims must strive towards offering the world a solution towards world peace. I'll do my best to answer most of these questions, or some of them anyway. 
uh, with seemingly six or seven hundred, eight hundred people here, uh, and uh, I'm holding in my hands at least 50 questions. I don't think I'm going to be able to answer uh, many of them, but I'll try to, to do my best, inshallah. And those I don't answer tonight, maybe I'll answer some of them tomorrow night, or maybe what I'll do when I go home, I'll categorize them, and I'll answer them separately, and then I'll give them to the uh, organizers of this lecture, and you'll see them posted here, inshallah. That's the best I can do for you. Um, the first question, in Australia, the Muslims suffer the same sickness as the Muslims in the Arab world. Oppressive and corrupt leadership, stunting the... Uh, let me, uh, before I even go into this uh, uh, question, I, I, don't believe that, I, I don't believe this hype about everything that's wrong with the Muslims is because of corrupt Muslim leaders. That's not correct. Because the leaders themselves are the leaders of weak divided and corrupt people. You see, when the people were the best, they had the best leaders. When the people become the worst, they get the worst leaders. And in most cases, when people point at leaders, they're only jealous because they want to be there, and when they get there, they'll do the same thing. We want better leaders. But I say to you brothers who have this talking, if you become better fathers, you become better neighbors, you become better co-workers, you become better colleagues, you become better people and examples for the Muslims as an individual, change your own behavior and you'll find that your family will change. Your neighborhood will change. Your society will change. Maybe Australia will change, maybe the world will change. But don't jump from you all the way to the, the Khilaf and the Islamic State. Because the house is not built that way. We don't suspend the chandelier in the, in the sky and then after that build the, build the foundation. So the issue of Islamic State, the issue of the rulership, this is an issue. But we don't talk about that issue before we discuss the issue of behavior. It is the behavior of Muslims themselves that have brought us to this condition. The behavior of you and me. You see? You know this behavior because in the morning for Fajr, in the morning for Fajr, how many people do you think will be here? Are there 100 people here praying Fajr? Are, are there 50? Alhamdulillah. And there are 400,000 Muslims in the Sydney? So, brothers and sisters, let's be very clear and fair about this. Let's first blame ourselves let's do what the prophet Yunus salam, did when he was swallowed by the big fish he said what la ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-dhalimin I'm the one that's to blame so blame ourselves first as brothers as fathers as individual Muslims blame ourselves reform ourselves then we will reform our communities and our families then maybe we will reform our neighborhoods maybe we'll reform our societies and then maybe we will be able to reform the world someone asked how did you find Islam well I'll just say to you this that I don't really have any extraordinary story I'll be honest with you <laughs> I'm one of the uh, 2.3 million uh, new Muslims in America. 
And uh, being, a Muslim, it's, being a Muslim in America is a phenomenal story. But for me, myself, I don't have any extraordinary story. Islam found me. <laughs> Can you explain to us about how important the beard is in Islam? Well, this wasn't relative to the topic, but I'll just say this. Clearly, the Messenger of Allah ordered us to leave it. Now, leave it means let it grow, in case you don't know. It doesn't mean leave it off. Leave it means leave it to grow. And just clip, he said, clip the mustache. Clip the mustache so it doesn't grow inside your mouth and that it's not, unclean, it's not unsanitary. Clip the mustache and let the beard grow. For the beard, the beard is a natural sign of manliness. And it's a natural sign of distinguishing men from women. And among the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, they used not to even look at a man who shaved his beard for fear they may have desire for him. <laughs> so the importance of the beard is not just something, um, as somebody might say, just something of your own particular choice. You like it or you don't like it, I want to wear my beard, I don't want to. If you decide willfully to shave your beard, you are willfully disobeying the Prophet And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He cursed the women that look like men, and He cursed the men that look like women. So let every Muslim fear Allah and make his own decision about this issue, but it's a very clear issue. And there is no disagreement among the ulama, there is some deviation among some of them, but there is no uh, 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 differences among them as to the whether the beard itself is wajib upon the man who is able to grow one. Huh? Are there any Muslims that um, believe the world is flat? La ilaha illallah. Yeah, they're, 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 brothers, this is, not a, this is not a relative question, but yes. In fact, one of our great teachers, one of our great teachers uh, who have passed away now, Sheikh Abdulaziz bin Baz, rahimullah, uh, some years ago. Uh, as a matter of fact, when the, um, he had this fatwa, that the, that the world was flat. Uh, but, but of course, we don't blame him because he, he was not able to see. So he had his opinion from what was brought to him and read to him in different books and things. And there was some opinion among people that when Allah said, uh, that it spread out, it meant that it was flat. But it is flat according to what we are seeing and walking, it is spread out and flat. But when we go out of space and we have seen it from outer space, it is round. And it's clearly established now, so I don't think there's any doubt scientifically. And the Quran did not, re did not disagree with that. So, um, uh, although this is a scientific question, I, I, yes, there are some Muslims, I think, who maybe say that, but I don't think that they are knowledgeable. Uh, is jihad a way to world peace? Uh, jihad, is a, jihad is a principle, which is a part of Islam. Jihad is a principle which is a part of Islam. And jihad is part of the regulation of Islam. So, we don't uh, pick and choose what we want of Islam. It's a, it's a part of Islam. When it comes, it comes. And those who engage in it, they are the choice people of this nation.
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, somebody asked me for the, for the dalil. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, هَلْ أَدُلُّكُمْ عَلَى تِجَارَةٍ تُنْجِيكُمْ مِنْ عَذَابٍ عَلِيمٍ تُؤْمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَتُجَاهِدُونَ فِي سَبِلِ اللَّهِ بِأَمْوَالِكُمْ وَعَنْفُوسِكُمْ ذَلِكُمْ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ So this, there's many more dalil we can give as to whether jihad is wajib upon the Muslims. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is inviting us, you see, to, to uh, uh, what? Tijara with him, to do what? Believe in Allah and his messenger and make jihad with our goods and our persons. The, uh, someone asked, can a man who has the characteristics of a Muslim be, uh, be it respect for elders, honor for family, no drugs, alcohol, etc., and yet never have been told about the existence of Allah, still have a chance of heaven? Uh, the issue is not a chance for heaven here. Uh, the person who asked this question, obviously they're not a Muslim, because everybody who is a Muslim knows that, first of all, it is not the issue of, it is not the issue of piety alone. It is piety for whom? Some people, they are pious, they are good people. They don't use drugs, they don't fornicate, they don't steal, they don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't do any of these things. But they aim all of this goodness towards the worshiping of Jesus Christ. So this means their worship is directed towards a human being. And anyone who directs their worship towards a human being, an animal, an object, a created thing, all of their deeds become nullified. Nullified. That means of no value. Why? Because they were misdirected. It's the same as if you have deposited your money in a bank. All of your life, you put all your money in a bank. And you found out later on that it was the wrong account. So it was good for you to save all of your money all your life, but you should have been put it in your own account. So those who are investing their piety and directing it towards or their worship towards other than the Creator, then it's nullified. And in fact, they will find themselves having to stand before the Creator with a great crime, and that is associating partners with Allah. Somebody said, uh, you painted a very positive picture with the character of the Muslim personality around the world today. With this in mind, is the Ummah ready to implement the system of Islam comprehensively in the form of Khilafah? Uh, I think I addressed that, that question. Um, I think that uh, the road towards our ultimate social aims begin with behavior. And I want to say that again. The Prophet ﷺ said, I have been sent to perfect what? Good manners. Good manners. The Messenger of Allah ﷺ, long before he was a ruler, long before he was a statesman, long before he was a legislator, he was known as Al-Amin, a person possessing the traits of trustworthiness. If your neighbors don't trust you, if your colleagues don't trust you, if your co-workers don't trust you, if you don't talk to them and, not, and they don't know you to be a good person, a decent, dignified individual, why should they accept from you Islam? Do we think that Islam is just giving people pamphlets and telling them that they should submit themselves to the Islamic authority? We think this is Islam? No, this is not Islam. Islam is the reforming of our behavior and through our behavior we are inviting the human beings. And the best dawah is your behavior. And brothers and sisters, please don't forget this issue. It is your behavior that either invites someone to Islam or your behavior 
that repels people away from Islam. Brother, what are the ways we can spread Islam in accordance with the Sunnah? Uh, I think I just answered that through our, through our behavior. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, when he came to Medina Munawwara, when he made the Hijrah, one of the first orders that he gave was, Look at this. Spread the food. Give food to the people. Invite them and go to them. You see? Invite them to eat with you, and you also answer their invitation. This is one. And give good greetings to those who you know and those who you don't know. Look at this. What is this? This is the order of behavior. So the Messenger of Allah he entered Medina, not with arrogance, not talking about the setting up of a state and establishing himself as the ruler. No, but finding out what is the need of the people, dealing with their problems. The Messenger of Allah started out as a human being, as a young boy. He belonged to a group of young people called Hilf al-Fudul. What is that? This is young people who are dedicated to doing what? Doing good. Charity, good works. What are some of our young people doing in the streets today? Are they helpful for the No, they're doing the opposite. So it is our behavior, brothers and sisters. Our behavior, brothers and sisters. Our behavior, brothers and sisters. Someone says, what will we see today as deviations in the world of Islam? How do we apply moral reform? You quoted some examples as a possible cure, punishment. What alternatives can we deploy? Well, punishment is the furthest extreme of regulation. Those who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they don't need punishment. Punishment is for those people who don't fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or for people, for, the, for an example to be made of some people, so that others will either fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or be reminded. The punishments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are wise. And the punishments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are just. And the punishments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they are not brutal, but they bring about regulation in the society. For if there was no regulation among human beings, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, if he, did not, uh, if he did not regulate one group of people by another group of people, what would they do? They would go through the earth and they would destroy everything and take what they wanted, unless some people would stop them from doing that. So Allah ordered us to do what? تَعْمَرُوا بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَتَنْهَوْنَ عَلَى الْمُنْكَرِ Enjoin the right and forbid the wrong. And part of the punishments is part of that from the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Someone said the establishment of the Islamic Sharia as binding laws and punishments for some of the crimes you have mentioned were seen primarily as a deterrent for crimes in itself. This is only valid if under Islamic State. Thus, this is non-existent today. What do we do for this? Um, the Sharia is not non-existent. Hudud, had. Had does we do not have the right to do had unless we have the authority in the land. This is correct. But does this mean we should not enjoy the right and forbid the wrong? Do we become helpless people? We don't forbid the right, we don't forbid the wrong. We can do what is short of the head. Head. Punishments. We don't cut the hands. We don't cut the necks. We don't kill the people. We don't stone the people. When we're living among the kuffar, we don't do that because we're not controlling government. We're not controlling the land. So had requires, has some special requirements. But does it mean we don't enjoy the right, we don't forbid the wrong just because of that? Then we go to the extreme that because we're living in a non-Muslim country, maybe we don't pray. We don't fast. No, we do everything that we are supposed to do 
But the issue of the Hajj itself is left, left up to the ruler. If there's no Islamic ruler, we don't perform the Hajj. It doesn't mean that Sharia is gone. There's no Sharia for us because there's no ruler. The ruler is not the possessor of Sharia. He's the, he's the executive of that. Someone asked from your talk that the Islamic State is the solution. Will you give a class about the detailed method on how to reestablish the state? Uh, honestly, uh, I'm not qualified to give a class on how to establish the Islamic State. Um, I think that we have scholars, qualified students of knowledge and scholars, who can talk to us about the manhaj of Islamic movement, the manhaj of the discipline required for this, and how it was done historically, and uh, what we should do to contribute towards that. But I'm not one of those students of knowledge, and I'm not one of those scholars to comment on that issue. And I'm, I'm only really trying to comment on some things relative to my talk today. Someone asked the question, do you think that um, man-made systems, communism, capitalism, democracy, etc., um, are, are designed to destroy Islam? No, I don't think that's it. The issue is not that they're designed to destroy Islam. This is something from their own nafs, their own desires. The human beings designed this for themselves. They think that this is best. They think that this is best, most profitable for them to follow. They didn't design it simply to destroy Islam. And I don't think that Muslims should have this kind of mentality that every other system is designed to destroy Islam. That's not the case. No, every other system that's set up is a system which a system set up by human beings is a system which is against the system of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but not necessarily designed as a conspiracy to undermine Islam. We, we Muslims are not reactionaries to a, a, a so-called conspiracy theory. We don't follow that. We don't have su'id uh, dhan. We don't think that everybody around us, because you become paranoid then. Everybody around us uh, is, is, is uh, conspiring to undermine us, to kill us, to put us in prisons, to destroy us, to so forth and so on. This is not the case. As a matter of fact, if you have husna dhan, if you have good behavior, and you participate with other human beings, and you exemplify your Islam wherever you are. Exemplify your Islam. Look, brothers, you are not far from Indonesia, is it? Australia is not far from Indonesia, is it? Indonesia was not established by armies going into Indonesia and conquering that country, was it? No. Muslims with good behavior, with good knowledge, with the intent to go there for da'wah, they moved there. And through their behavior and through their dawah and their intermingling with the people, what happened to Indonesia? Indonesia capitulated to Islam. And today, Indonesia is the, most, is the largest population of Muslims on the earth. What did it come from? It came through dawah. Through the behavior of the Muslims. So this is a proof this can happen in the world today. Any government in the world today, any society in the world today can capitulate to the behaviors and the manner of the Qur'an and Muhammad But you have to believe this and therefore you have to give the da'wah because if you don't give the da'wah, you are muda'i yourself. You don't give the da'wah because you don't believe that. So therefore what happens, you yourself becomes the subject of da'wah and therefore you capitulate to their da'wah. And so we have become prisoners of somebody else's dawah because we're not giving the dawah. They have confidence. The communists, the atheists, the socialists, the, the, the capitalists, all of them 
The homosexuals, the lesbians, all of them have their own da'wah. And they are confident about it. And they spend money for it. If you're not confident about yours and you don't spend money for it, why are you blaming them? They're doing their job. Says, brother, what is your view on the war with Iraq? I think it's a criminal war. Let's just be very clear. I'm an American citizen, but as an American citizen, I still have the privilege to have a dissent with my government about something I think is a criminal act. I think that the war on on Iraq is a criminal war. I didn't. It has. It's not the issue of Saddam Hussein. That's not the issue. I think the whole world agrees that Saddam has acted criminally towards his own people and towards other Muslims. The whole world agrees to that. I don't think we need to blow a horn to say that. Everybody knows that. But the issue here is not Saddam Hussein. And also, the social injustices in Iraq by Saddam Hussein or anybody else, or in Afghanistan by anybody else, is not the affairs of another group of people. Who appointed the United States of America? Who appointed Great Britain? Who appointed anybody to go into another country and to restore social justice while they don't have it in their own country? And let's be fair and let's be just. Did the people of Iraq, if they are oppressed and tyrannized by Saddam, did they ask America or Great Britain, did they ask to come and be rescued? They didn't. So how do you go somewhere to rescue some people they didn't ask? <laughs> no, there is something, there is something inside that land which you want and you're using their oppression as a guise to capture what you want and what you want is not Saddam because whether Saddam goes into exile or not they are going in because it's what they want and only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the Muslims themselves we don't need to talk about this issue because if we had the power to stop them we would have stopped them we don't have the power. So why we keep talking about it? Our condition is what the Prophet ﷺ spoke about a long time ago. He said, a time will come when the nations of the world will gather themselves together around you like a, 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 like a, a group of people gather around a plate of food, isn't it? Huh? And they will have what? No respect for you. They will have no respect for you. And you will have substance like Gufaz said. Like the foam on the bubbles on the, on the shore, on the, on the sea, when it goes to the shore, it goes back, it leaves nothing there but trash. So the substance of the Muslims is like that today. So the Kafirs, whoever they are, they know our substance because they know the real Muslims. They dealt with the real Muslims before. They ain't got no respect for us right now. So why should they be considered about us shouting or saying or whatever we're doing? We're not the right Muslims. So what's going to happen in Iraq will happen by the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this musibah, which we will suffer and they will suffer, is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't blame the ones who bring it. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought Genghis Khan on the Muslims, did the, could the Muslims blame Genghis Khan or blame themselves? What was their condition when Genghis Khan was brought on them? Was they righteous? Was they fearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Was they performing their prayers? Was they obeying the Prophet ﷺ sunnah? No, they wasn't. So Allah brought this musibah on them, which was worse than the musibah which will come to Iraq today.
the musibah of Genghis Khan was worse than the musibah which will bring the Muslim what's happening to us today. So we Muslims change our behavior and stop pointing the finger and blaming somebody else, blame yourselves. Um, the brother said, this is the last question. Um, Jazakallah for an um, informative, objective, and logical lecture. During this lecture, you mentioned some status of uh, uh, Muslim societies and about drugs, etc., and compared this to non-Muslim societies. Some will argue that the status are not published in Muslim societies. If it, if it, if it is not published, it is because it doesn't exist. Because if it was existing, they would publish it. And in case the person who asked this question hasn't traveled around the world, I was born in Harlem, New York. So I know what drugs and prostitution is. And I have traveled all over the world. I've been to Hong Kong. I've been to Singapore. I've been to Bangkok. I've been to Bombay. I've been to Delhi. You know, I'm living uh, in, in the UK now. So I mean, I've been to the major societies and countries where Muslims are the majority and where they are the major minority. And I said to you, I gave you the statistics, or you want to call them guesstimates. I gave them to you from the experience, from my own empirical experience and observation as a social scientist of a person reading and a person observing. And I say to you that the Muslim world, what I just said to you, the issue of prostitution, drug addiction, alcoholism, theft, murder, abortion, it's an abnormality. It's something extraordinary and rare among the Muslims. But it's a normal thing. As a matter of fact, it has become a major disease in all of the non-Muslim societies. So we don't need to, we don't need to think whether or not it's, it's something is happening among the Muslims that's unpublished. If you think it is not so, go to the Muslim countries and see for yourself and you will see that basically I've been very fair and very objective in what I've given. And I didn't say that the Muslims themselves are free of these diseases, I said that. They exist, but they do not exist in the open. You will never find in any Muslim society where a court of law has given men the right to marry men and women the right to marry women and also given them the right to adopt children as a family. Now this has happened in America and, and Great Britain, that's the case. If a woman wants to get married to a woman, she can. If a man wants to marry a man, he can. And they can adopt children, and nobody can say anything about that. That's the law. Now, I don't know about Australia. You brothers have to tell me about that. So, I won't answer any more questions, inshallah. I want to thank uh, the brothers and sisters. Uh, I want to thank you, first of all, for coming. That's number one. I want to thank the First Islam uh, organization for sponsoring this uh, and, and for the rest of the, the tour. I want to also thank uh, the Imam of the Masjid for allowing us uh, and for overseeing this. Uh, I want to thank all of you, uh, more especially for your patience and for your tolerance, uh, especially our sisters, inshallah, um, uh, who may have had more questions than we have, but maybe the, the questions didn't reach me, I don't know. Uh, 
They sent questions. They sent questions. Jazakallah alhamdulillah. And more than, more than anything else, I want to thank the young people. You see, the young Muslims who could have been in the street, or who could be in the places of playing with the video games or something, or watching television, they chose to come here and sit for two hours to listen to this. I want to thank them. And I want to ask you to come back again, inshallah. And I hope that maybe tomorrow night uh, I'll give another addition to this uh, discussion here and that um, I'll answer some questions that I did, didn't answer this evening. What is the purpose of life? Why is it that when we ask the simple question, what is the purpose of our lives? Why do we get so many different answers? It is because people haven't really thought about it. It's too frightening. Not the question itself is frightening, but what's frightening is that if we answer it clearly, it may change our lives indelibly. And we are afraid of change. And now we have discovered that every part of creation that has been discovered is inside of a drop of water. Well, the Quran already said that to us 1,500 years ago, that we created everything and every single thing from water. The Quran said that. We want to talk this evening about Jesus, the son of Mary, and his phenomenal birth. A birth that very few human beings, whether Muslims or Christians, have any argument about. We believe, and our Quran makes it clear for us and confirms for us, that Jesus Christ, in fact, he was born without the intervention of sperm. That his mother, Mary, that blessed woman, she became pregnant by the word of God. No man touched her. Eight murders or homicides are committed every 19 minutes. And two rapes are committed every seven minutes. And there are three robberies every 59 seconds. There are 257,000 children that are legally or illegally aborted. That is, 257,000 children are killed in the womb by license. 21 million children are born every year out of wedlock who do not know their mothers and fathers or who do not know whom they are fathered by. 2.8 million suicides every year of human beings who find no reason to live. With these kinds of social problems inside of their own boundaries, inside of their own governments, in their own institutions, how can they 
bring peace to the world. It doesn't make sense. Oh Muslims, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds you and me that whatever good happens, it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if something else happens, this is from our own hands. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He has ordered you and I to enjoin what is right and forbid what is wrong. And when we cease to do that, we don't enjoin the right, we don't enjoin, uh, enjoin the, we don't enjoin the right, we don't forbid the wrong, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promised that He will visit us a calamity from Himself. So that, When the calamity happens, or you are punished, and the musibah comes upon you, and you call upon Allah, He will not answer. What do the Muslims of today expect? The character of the Muslim is the most important part of the Muslim. Not what he or she says, not only what he or she wears, not where they come from or who their mother or father is or grandfather. Not the country they live in or for that matter if they live next to the Kaaba. This is not important at all. It is the character because the character is the actual fruit. And we can remember on the occasion when the Prophet ﷺ invited his companions to make a sacrifice in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Umar ibn al-Khattab, he brought half of his wealth. And he considered this to have been a major sacrifice. And he was very proud of that. But when Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu came, Abu Bakr, he brought all of his wealth. And when the Prophet ﷺ asked Abu Bakr what he had left for his family, what was the response of Abu Bakr He said, Allahu wa Rasuluhu. Allah and his messenger ﷺ. And it was by the suggestion or the order of the Prophet ﷺ that Abu Bakr took back some of his wealth for his family. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that there was no one from among the Muslims who displayed his loyalty to Allah and his messenger ﷺ similar to that of Abu Bakr. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He said, yes, definitely, who, who is better, who is more excellent, than the one that calls towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not just calling, not just shouting, not just arguing. But they are acting upon what they are calling. They are setting a precedent for what they are calling too. They have established a behavior, a paradigm, an example to what they are calling too. And they openly 
say, announce, I am Muslim. Where oceans and rivers meet, does the ocean take over the river? It doesn't, although the ocean might be five times, six times, eight times, ten times larger than a river. And you know, if you took two bodies of water and you put a funnel in between them, what would happen? The larger body would absorb the smaller body, wouldn't they? But in the case of the ocean and the river, it doesn't happen because Allah said he put a bazaar. So they do not overcome each other. And one of our uh, Jacques Cousteau, who passed away now, he was a marine biologist. He was able to film under the ocean where the rivers meet the ocean and the river meets the ocean and the ocean meets the river and they go back. They meet and they go back. So therefore the rivers return back to itself and the ocean returns back to itself. They do not overcome each other. How did the Prophet know that? Islam has five fundamental pillars. The first of which is to bear witness that there is none to be worshipped except Almighty God. Consistent with the first commandment given to Moses. Consistent with the first commandment that Jesus Christ also said is the greatest of the commandments. Hear you, Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Absolutely one. Not the number one. Not the number one that could be divided into one, two, three. Not the number one that could be multiplied. But absolutely one. Having no one besides. No other God besides. Hear ye, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind and all thy soul, and thou shalt not worship anyone except the Lord thy God, nor bow down to any graven images in the heavens or the earth or the sea below. Such said Moses, and such said confirmed Jesus Christ, and such said the Quran. This is what we bear witness, and this is the first pillar of Islam, and the most important. If war erupts in Iraq, more than 3,000 missiles will be rained upon Iraq in a course of six, six hours, and more than a half a million people will be killed. Can you tell me how the lives of a half a million people are equal to a leader, Saddam Hussein? If America was able to go into South America and pull out what was the guy's name? General uh, Noriega. Noriega. America was selling drugs with Noriega, but then Noriega flipped on them. So they went in and took this man from his country, brought him out, and put him in jail for life in their country. So why did they don't just go into Iraq and pull out Saddam? No, they need to go into Iraq. Why? Because you'll find that in a matter of six months after the war, the prices in the oil will go down. And as we speak right now, there are 27 mega companies, mega companies who are bidding for contracts for the reconstruction of Iraq. What does it have to do with Saddam Hussein and democracy? If a man had to get pregnant and have a baby, he would die. And then on top of that, if he had to look forward to taking care of that child for the next 
10, 15, 20 years. And sometimes the mother, she's taking care of a grown child. Men who still live with their mothers. You couldn't do it. And still she's taking care of herself and she's taking care of her husband. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward those sisters. And may Allah cover their faults. And may Allah cause the husbands and brothers and sons to appreciate them. Because they are the goodly trees that bear the goodly fruit Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in the Quran. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he made brotherhood very sacred, very important. It's the whole basis of the Muslim society, brotherhood. And when there's no brotherhood, believe it, there is no substance among the Muslims. No substance. The first principle and characteristics of da'wah is that the da'i has to have knowledge. Not just ambition, not just emotional drive, and not just a reaction to some insult that somebody has said, and not just a feeling to want to give dawah because you know it's an obligation. All of those things are good, and it's all necessary. But without knowledge, what are you going to do? But always show your composure and your willingness to talk to anybody. Because why? You put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the very beginning. The Messenger of Allah said, Allah, He didn't have all the answers. But He put His trust upon Allah. Allah says to him, Fatawakkalu ala Allah in kuntum mu'mineen. في روحه عزم عظيم في الهمة الكبرى تجسد يغشى الوضى من غير خوف وحنين والأحزاب تشد في روحه عزم عظيم في الهمة الكبرى تجسد يغشى الوضى من غير خوف وحنين والأحزاب تشهد يغشى الوضى من غير خوف وحنين والأحزاب تشهد